Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, this is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And we're back for another week. Uh, very excited about our guest today, but before we get started with that, time to check in. How are things? Things are good. Things are, things are really good, actually. I've decided I <laughs> have a new perspective on the whole situation. Um, during distance learning last spring, there was a teacher at my son's school, Mr. Rodriguez, who spearheaded this tell me something good video every week. Um, it was his own message and then the kids had video messages and it was kind of this roundup of what the kids were thinking about and how things were going and what they were doing outside and all this stuff based on that Shaka Khan Rufus song, you know, that I think oh, yeah. Wonder wrote for her that's so awesome <laughs> and is such a fun little anthem. Anyway, in that spirit, I am really inspired to talk about positive signs that we're seeing amid the negatives of the pandemic and the recession and all the politics that are roiling around all over the place. So I'm, I'm kind of on a positive spin this week. <laughs> I'm happy like, to I say. Like that. Yeah, we need that sometimes. We need yeah. positive energy. Um, well, there are some good things happening. I mean, that's the thing. There's lots of good things happening in a lot of different arenas. So it's, it's you know, it's out there. You just have yeah. to be, pick it yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I feel the same way. It's, it's um, that, I mean, it's just, maybe it's because we're all paying a little bit more attention to the news than we otherwise would. But I, I have, there have been some great stories about, you know, things like um, communities winning their battles over pipelines going through, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> their sure. neighborhoods and, um, and land and other that's been really good there's there's some other there's some other things that are just worth celebrating you know there really. are absolutely and some of them are you know little signals and others are are bigger things um you know that i heard recently heard about the this trace coalition announcing this effort to track emissions in real time which is pretty cool yeah um, and i saw that morgan stanley joined a carbon accounting group which is just you know kind of one more little thing little sign that conventional capitalism is seeing climate in a way and that to me is a good thing um, totally. and then there's some good stuff in in Biden's climate plan that I think is pretty interesting and exciting um, some really solid targets around renewables and environmental justice and I don't know good stuff yeah I agree I, I mean I think um, I'm still planning to write a blog about the Biden climate plan yeah. and the house climate plan and all of these things and and sort of highlight some of the things but I, I will say one of the things I liked about the Biden plan is that they put job creation front and center in the building section yep. um, and and it and specifically jobs to renovate buildings not to build new ones which as you know mm -hmm. is kind of one of my soap boxes uh, yep. so it was really great to see that. And um, yeah, lots more to say there, but. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's in the house climate plan too. workforce development and embodied carbon are, you know, really called out in direct ways that 
it's good. It's more positive and it's more sort of concrete and the targets are getting firmer and firmer as we go forward. Yeah, I, I love it. I have another positive thing that I want to share that, that I experienced this week. I read a wonderful book that I thought might actually be of interest to some of our listeners. Um, it's written by a woman named Natalie Molina Nino, who I had the pleasure mm -hmm. of meeting um, last year, and it's called Leapfrog. And it's basically a book about how to be an entrepreneur if you're a woman or a person of color and you feel a little bit like that whole landscape of entrepreneurship isn't for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I, I was reading it in part to sort of get myself psyched up for my next chapter. Um, and also because I just know she's an incredible badass woman. Um, so it's a, uh, it's really helpful, I would say. It's, it's actually got some good like pro tips in there about starting companies, especially venture-backed ones, but not just that. I would say any kind of organization or if you're just a woman who's thinking about doing her own thing and you're trying to kind of imagine what that's going to feel like or, you know, get some ideas on how to build up your profile, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, so that's it was a very great. positive and that one's been on my list. I followed her on social for a little while, but it's been a little lower on my list. I think I'll bump it up. Thank you for the recommendation. Yeah, it, it is, you know, as a basically a business book, it's a quick yep. read. Uh, yeah. you know, in that sense, at least for me, I've learned how Helpful. to read business books. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I, I would definitely keep it on the list. But yeah, if it's, it's, it's in particular, I think it's a good thing to have in a moment where you're like, oh, am I really going to do this? And I have to go into rooms full of old men and, you know, like hold my own and do my, th like, how is this going to go? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good book for reminding you that you have everything and more that, you know, the, that it takes to get this, uh, to, to get something cool done. So, and so speaking of badass women and starting things and having um, an amazing amount of uh, courage and willpower. I'm very excited to introduce our guest for today, Stacy Smedley. Hey, Stacy, welcome to the show. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. We're so yeah. glad you are, Stacy. It's great to have you. Um, so Stacy is an architect and has worked for the global construction firm Skanska for seven years. And for the past five of those, she's been um, their director of sustainability, overseeing sustainability documentation, education, advocacy, and strategy. Um, and then after helping create the Embodied Carbon in Construction Calculator, EC3, that many people might have heard of, um, on behalf of Skanska, which launched, launched last year, uh, Stacy's now on loan from Skanska to help support a new nonprofit building transparency to manage, develop, and scale the EC3 tool. And she's their executive director. So we're really psyched to have you with us, Stacy. Thank you. Yeah, and we just, you know, want to start off by asking you if you can tell us about your path in architecture and construction and sustainability. It's, it's such a cool path. So if you want to tell us the story, we'll start there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it starts all the way back when I was about two and a half. So I'll try to do it as concisely <laughs> as I can. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I grew up in um, Clackamas, Oregon, which at the time when I was, was, was conceived and born, it was pretty rural. And I was um, the product of uh, a single mom who decided that after a, a marriage and divorce and loss of her first child that she wanted to have a, another baby. So she used a sperm donor to conceive me. And I grew up in a house with my 
grandparents and my mom all in one house, um, which is another whole story I could go down uh, by itself in terms of the impacts that had on me. But um, that rural uh, location um, at, at the time when I was about seven, eight, my grandpa um, decided to sell our acreage. So we were on a pretty rural plot of land in a house. We kept the house and um, we were kind of on a hill so I could watch as, as they came in and, um, you know, the um, construction equipment came in and uh, cut down the trees and kind of cleared the land that I had been playing on since I was, you know, able to walk. And um, I told my mom that one day I was going to grow up and try to build things that didn't destroy nature. And at the exact same time in school, uh, we were tasked with uh, doing a report on a person that had done something first. And Julia Morgan was on the list and I picked her at random because it was a woman and um, she ended up being a huge inspiration. She was the first architect that was a female licensed in the state of California, the first female architect to attend uh, Le Col de Beaux-Arts in Paris. Um, and really all that coalesced into me thinking that I was gonna go become the, the best green architect out there um, and really try to build things that um, were, were not destroying you know, the nature that I loved growing up. Um, so that was what sent me down the architecture path. And then of course I got my degree in architecture. I practiced uh, for a number of years through my internship and always focused on green buildings. Um, learned about the living building challenge, uh, got a team to put together a pro bono team to build the first living building in Seattle in Washington um, and met Skanska through that project. Um, and all of a sudden realized that, gosh, if I'm looking at scaled impact, um, as an architect, I was working on one or two projects at a time and at a contractor like Skanska, I could be working on a bunch of projects at once and really try to make a larger impact uh, more quickly. Um, that led to me asking for a job at Skanska and then them giving me one um, and then working my way into the director of sustainability role. And that really led to carbon accounting and, and really the, um, the really deep dive into how we uh, tackle embodied carbon building materials. Yeah, and so you started working on that um sort of on the side and now it's essentially become your main project for the for the moment can you talk a little bit about how how you've managed to you know juggle those things and how, how you how you uh seem to be i don't know we, we're going to talk in a minute about all the other things you do with your time but you know the um just tell us where do you get your energy from yeah, so that's a good question. Um, you know, I think I started getting this question from my grandma when I was a teenager and I just couldn't sit still. So there's something inherently in me that <laughs> keeps me from uh, stopping and taking a, a deep breath as often as maybe I should. Um, but no, I think, you know, I am very, um, I learned this about myself. I am very impact driven and I'm very, um, I, I fill up when I get to actually help others become inspired to do something or I can actually see the fruits of, of doing something in a positive impact lens. So I think right now, there's so much, I think you mentioned this in the intro, um, Kira, there's so much positive that's happening right now around um, corporate responsibility and commitments to carbon reduction and understanding of all these emissions that I'm just really energized by that potential um, positive impact. So I, I would say that's what's um, driving me right now is that we're at this weird, weird, strange place with COVID and everything um, where we're in a different kind of setting, but the potential for positive impact when it comes to, you know, explicitly embodied carbon of building materials has never been bigger. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just really excited about what's happening right now and wanting yeah. to make sure I keep up with the momentum. Yeah, it, it is. I, I know what you mean. Sometimes it just feels like the world is moving fast, so you have to move fast with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, okay, so speaking of other inspiring things, 
I think everyone should know just as a context for the rest of our conversation about all the things that you do that are not related to buildings, um, such <laughs> as your band and your children's books. So could you tell us a little bit about that and any other wonderful projects that you might have hiding up your sleeves? Yeah, so there's actually, there is quite a bit going on right now outside of just embodied carbon in my world. But I think, you know, starting with music, that's been something that's been hugely important to me since I was a teenager. I picked up a guitar when I was 16, just started writing songs and then actually put it down again um, in my mid-20s when professional stuff started taking over. And then about four years ago now, um, just decided that I need to find a way to actually bring that back into my life and uh, started an open mic at a local pub and knew that if I started the open mic, I'd have to learn three songs a week. Um, <laughs> and that led to us actually forming a band out of, of a group of uh, neighborhood musicians that started coming to the open mic. That's called Magnolia Steel. And we practice every Tuesday and I've been doing, um, we were on the news actually a couple weeks ago because we were doing these um, concerts off of um, my bandmate's deck where neighbors are now congregating socially distanced to listen to us every week. And that's been really fulfilling. I think it's just another way to do something that's somewhat normal um, right now. And yeah. um, mm -hmm. that's the music part. <laughs> um, and I write the songs and there's, you know, obviously a environmental bent to some of them and uh, try to build all that into the, the songwriting too. And then on the book side, yeah, so there's, um, you know, I think going down the lens of, of songwriting and writing, um, I love to write. My grandpa was also a writer and um, I'd written some poems, uh, one about living buildings and one about bees and one about um, trees and why we need them. And um, I shared that with one of my bandmates who's also an artist and now he's illustrating those and we're going to um, release the series uh, in the upcoming weeks. So that's exciting. So we had to learn I had to start a publishing company so that we can self-publish and do all that research about Library of Congress and all those things. Um, mm -hmm. But it's been really fun and I'm excited to get that out. It's also, you know, I think positive impact not in my professional life, but when it looks at how we educate our, our kids about this stuff too. That's great. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm so impressed. Uh, but it's kind of cool to hear just how it all sort of ties together for you. And I can um, see how, you know, it helps probably with some aspects of your work to have the more creative side come in and all of that. I think it's nice when you have a life that allows for all of these different types of expression and work and super cool. Um, well, so one question, I guess, about your path, going back to the professional stuff a little bit more, especially because you made this transition from architecture to construction. I'm curious if you have any thoughts for other people who may be considering that transition, what they, what they might want to be um, interested in or good at to transition into the world of construction not even just architects, but anybody interested in sustainability? Do you have thoughts about that? Sure, yeah, I think um, just starting with kind of my personal journey from the architecture perspective, you know, there's there's people that are really invested in that ownership of the design and that ability to create through the design process and, and come up with the, the solutions from a design and programming perspective and aesthetic perspective. And for me, when I started looking at Skanska through co-locating with them on that project I mentioned, that living building project, I realized personally myself, it wasn't about the need to kind of own the design or be the one in charge of the aesthetic. So it was really more about the impact um, the project or the building would have on people and where I could have the biggest impact when it came to that from an environmental perspective. So I think part of it is just really understanding, you know, 
where your passions are around what you do and making sure you're aligning that with where you where you are working and how you're focusing on things just generally and then in construction especially around sustainability um you know i i am as you just heard through my my kind of songwriting uh writing uh brain a right-brained person i'm more creative versus more analytical but on the construction side, I found that I can really nerd out on the data now because it's important from that impact perspective. And I, I say that because in construction, there is a lot of numbers and spreadsheets and analyzing of data and looking at relative impacts of things that is more of kind of an analytical approach to things and very data-driven. And that was kind of a, a hurdle or a, uh, something that kind of scared me at first, but I've gotten accustomed to it and now I kind of embrace it. I think that that's one of the things about the construction industry, though, is that it's all based on, you know, schedule, cost, uh, numbers, um, efficiencies, risk evaluations, all those things, and how um, that applies to sustainability when we're looking at, you know, both impact on climate from a risk perspective, but also the data and analytics around, you know, emissions reduction and impacts on costs and all those things. That's so interesting. I'm convinced that actually that sort of unification of data and impact with the right brain thinking is actually what brings a lot of people into this realm. I, I don't, I can't prove that, but I, I, to hear you describe it that way reminds me that I really do think that we so often hear people talk about, well, I was really interested in this over here and then this thing over here and the ability to be like, find a pursuit that unites those is um, really powerful. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about carbon and embodied carbon and how, how those, how that area came to be so central for you. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think, um, again, trying that, that, you know, seven or eight year old Stacy's mantra of building things that don't destroy nature made me very focused on climate impacts and what, you know, climate change is doing um, to our natural environment and digging into climate change uh, when it comes to buildings, it, it really does kind of veer you towards carbon emissions. Um, and that's because carbon emissions are such a big of the building industry are such a big piece of the pie globally, you know, over 40% um, um, of, of carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions come from the building industry. And so that kind of, you know, steers you towards that as a focus. And then you dig into that. And, you know, I think we all can talk about operational energy and, and carbon of buildings in a pretty literate way at this point, because we've been looking at it for so long. And then you kind of uncover that, okay, we're doing well on that. We're getting to, to lower emissions through efficiencies of design, through optimizing systems, through energy grids, um, decarbonizing. However, I wish that was faster. Um, and then it's okay, what's left? And there's building materials and how we make all this stuff and transport it. And gosh, how do we quantify that? And uh, where's the data when it comes to those things? And oh, wow, if you're looking at a project over a certain time based on, again, going back to your data, right? If you all of a sudden have some form of data to look at operational and, and this embodied carbon bucket, which is the manufacturing, transport, installation, kind of use of building materials, you're able to start to do these graphs. And Architecture 2030 did a really good job of, of analyzing this a uh, handful of years ago and putting out graphs that I think, gosh, I'm almost everyone I know uses now as their first slides and presentations um, that showed if we were really truly taking 2050 uh, as our line in the sand for zero carbon, that looking at a building's operational and embodied carbon impacts, it was about 50-50 on average. So all of a sudden, um, for me, it was, gosh, we've been focusing on this for a long time and feeling pretty good about ourselves that we can at least quantify it and know, know how to reduce it. But what is this kind of wild west of embodied carbon and how do we start to really understand it, account for it, and then drive lower carbon products so that we can reduce it in time? Um, well, we mentioned the EC3 tool 
um, in your introduction, um, but I don't want to assume that everybody knows exactly what that is. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the genesis of that and sort of where it's going. Sure. Yeah. So again, I think it's just a continue of the story. I just continuation of the story I just told where we got to a point at, at, at Skanska and my work to understand all this, um, where on our commercial development projects where we are the owner, um, we could mandate to ourselves that we would track these things. So we were doing some really good kind of benchmarking at the end of a project using average emissions factors for materials and our site emissions to say, okay, this is what we did or kind of what we could have maybe done based on average data. Um, but that was really not helping us inform anything besides knowing what we've done. And so the, the question started percolating in my brain, well, gosh, how do we access this data early? What are the sources of really good material-specific emissions data? So if we're doing a cost estimate, we can look at the cost of a particular product or, or material, but also the carbon content of that material and really make an informed choice that might drive those carbon numbers down during the decision-making process and design. I kind of looked for materials or tools that were, were doing that specifically at the kind of supply chain product level where we could compare, you know, product A versus product B and pick the lower carbon option. Um, I found environmental product declarations that have that data, but I couldn't find a place where I was could find an aggregated data set and search it and compare and start to actually make choices or at least have our owners make choices based on that information. So Skanska's, um, you know, I feel I feel blessed to work for a company that has values around sustainability, but also really supports it and, and walks the talk. There's innovation grants that you can apply for as an employee. So I applied for an innovation grant to come up with a tool that would allow us to basically source all the environmental product declarations we could, which really has that carbon data built into it for products, create an open database where we could look at it and compare it and analyze it. And then also a building tool where we could then quantify our projects and show reductions. And I had found Sea Change Labs through the Carbon Leadership Forum. Again, networks and ecosystems are a whole other topic that I'm really jazzed about um, using connections to find people that can help you do things. So Sea Change Labs, uh, Phil Northcott, the CEO, was on the Carbon Leadership Forum Embodied Carbon Network talking about how he wanted to do software for good. <laughs> and so I reached out to him. Uh, and we came up with this proof of concept uh, of the embodied carbon and construction calculator, which everyone now knows as EC3. And then, you know, as we were working on this proof of concept, we were also interviewing for a large project and the client had a commitment to um, zero carbon emissions. And in our presentation in the interview, I said, have you looked at embodied carbon? You've got all this great stuff on the operational side, but have you, did you know that this project could actually emit this much from its materials? And they, they then said, well, we want you to help us reduce that and invest it in the tool. Uh, that was Microsoft. Um, and then Microsoft and Skanska decided together that uh, for the tool to really have an impact on industry, we would need to turn it over um, to a, a nonprofit, to a kind of agnostic place to continue its development uh, and help fund its development to launch. So it went to the Carbon Leadership Forum as a grant project. Uh, I stayed involved as the kind of user interface principal investigator uh, and we launched it, launched it publicly last November. Um, it's free, open access. You can pull all the data through an API. It's right now, I think, got over 7,500 registered users since November. That's amazing. You must feel very proud of that, for sure. Um, and it's it's really, I mean, it's really exciting to see that. Uh, speaking of being proud, I'm just wondering what else in your work life are you most proud of accomplishing? Really, and this could be anything, like mentoring people or or producing something like EC3. Wow, um, I, I'm I'm going to say this because I think it actually is kind of core to my ph philosophy in life, thanks to my mom. But I think it's um, 
doing something first and not being scared of that. So I, you know, the things like I'm thinking in my brain are things like figuring out a way to build a living building with a pro bono team and be the first one to do that in Washington state. So now that others can actually see that that's possible. And now I think it's um, the EC3 tool and being able to really um, give something to industry that makes embodied carbon accounting possible. But those both stem from that, you know, not being afraid to just kind of go for it um, and see what happens. And I think it's also, you know, there are failures that you could look, I could look back on too, where I did that and it didn't work out, but they just made the ones that did even more meaningful. I don't know if that answers the question explicitly. It does. <laughs> and I'm glad you mentioned the two that didn't work out because I think it's interesting and in, important to remember, you know, what we learn when things don't go as well as we'd like, because those gains are really important to the big win that happens next, I think. Yeah. Um, interesting. Well, is there, a, is there a new project that you're working on now that you'd like listeners to know about? I mean, gosh, right now it's, it's, continuing EC3. So I think it's, we got it to launch and show that that was successful. And there's so much interest in growing it. That really is my main focus right now. I think I've got all these other fun things that I'm doing with books and music. But um, when it comes to professional, professional life, I think it's scaling EC3 to more categories. There's interest in other um, global places. Um, how do we inform policy with it? It really is kind of wrapped around that and just making sure that it's set up um, for long-term success. Yep, absolutely. Do you want to say anything more about what scaling up looks like? I mean, what that what that really means for the tool? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we started out with a very kind of explicit list of material categories to focus on. That was, I think, in response to kind of strategic thinking around, do, you, do I do everything all at once as perfect as possible? Or do you pick a certain set of high impact things and do that really well and then apply that to everything else? So we took that second model. So we're working on more material categories that are going to get rolled out publicly um, that people are asking for things like other flooring categories and things like that for assessment. And then there's also, um, I think, scaling globally, the U.S. and North America has a certain impact, but gosh, there's big impacts across the water and other places when it comes to material emissions. And we really want to help manufacturers understand disclosure in some of those markets. Then also, you know, kind of, I think this time take lessons learned from how, how we're doing this from a procurement perspective in the States, where I think we're a little ahead, quite frankly, which I don't want to get in trouble for saying that, but I think it's one of the first times in my career where we're actually doing things maybe a little faster um, or more proactively on the supply chain side uh, than other, other global places. So can we push that learning out and take that to the, the Europe's and the India's and the, the Asia's and really make it a global tool versus a North American tool? That is kind of surprising, but cool to hear that we that the U.S. is is ahead on some of those fronts. I wonder <laughs> we don't we don't have time to get into it today, but I'm kind of curious why it is that that is the case. But um, but it is really great to hear. We um, in in my previous role, we did a lot of work on this, and EC3 was exciting um, as a tool for us. Um, and the idea of trying to of being able to do better procurement around embodied carbon in India, especially, is is, is pretty mind blowing. So um, excited that that's where you guys are headed. So okay, so speaking of scale, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about our movement as a whole, and or, or you can call it the industry or whatever. It's um, it, th this is something that we like to talk to people about because we're always curious about attitudes in this realm of sort of being a part of something bigger. And so the first question I have 
is whether you feel like the work that you do is part of an industry or part of a movement or if it's both and how do you think about them um do, do you think about the distinction between being sort of a professional versus being a an activist or however you want to phrase it yeah i think um this has been actually recent for me as i start i grapple with the same question by myself is i it's more of an ecosystem way of thinking in my mind where it's you know, first of all, where does the building industry play and how big is that circle compared to other sectors and how do we connect how we're tracking and quantifying these things and making commitments to each other. So that's kind of the, the macro scale of, you know, building industry versus other industries. You know, there are things that we share in terms of proactively setting targets or reductions and overlaps. And we need to understand the size of our, our circle in that ecosystem, uh, but not assume that it's it's bigger or smaller than it is too. So be realistic and and understanding of of what role you have to play in the bigger picture. And then I think on the um, just on the industry perspective perspective and and movement perspective, it's again, I've learned this from Skanska to some degree, I think that we are a part of a whole, and uh, we can't assume that us doing something well is enough. So how do we again take, I think that ecosystem approach where, if we're doing something well, we can transfer that through a conduit to somebody else, you know, within our same contractor bucket or to an architecture firm. And then how does that kind of spread and how are we all intersecting and not becoming our own little kingdoms as we try to address this? Yeah. So it's the same when it comes to advocacy too, I think, right? We could be our own kind of little kingdom of advocacy or we can reach out to others that are trying to accomplish similar things and make a bigger impact too through kind of our combined voices, I guess. Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me of something I talked to my team about um, in my last job at WeWork, which is that we wanted to start using our voice and kind of getting out there and advocating and, and, and trying to help the larger movement. But we also knew that we had to get our house in order because we were an entirely new team working on sustainability in a company that hadn't really done that before. And um, and it's not, I think this is sort of similar to what you're saying, but what I decided was right was that we do both at the same time um, and I think not a lot of companies have chosen that at least in the past 20 years there's sort of a sense you need to start acting 100% sustainably before you start telling other people or helping other people along that that path um, and in our case I think it was possible to sort of you know humbly go ahead and start trying to lift all boats while we were figuring out how to you know lift our own yeah um, and uh yeah, I think it, Skanska and your work specifically, Stacey, is such a great example of, of of just, you know, having a commitment to both. But even for organizations where maybe they don't feel like they're as far along as Skanska is, I think it's still okay to see yourself as a part of a, a bigger group, you know? Yeah, I think we're seeing that, though. I mean, just in the past few days, I've seen all of these, um, like, combined corporate commitments coming out. There was a, the We Mean Business one that came out. I can't remember who was on any of these, just that they exist. There's you know, companies like Apple and the Microsofts of the world, but also a host of others now signing into these kind of corporate commitments together that they're going to figure out how to do this versus that they right. know the answer. But literally, it's been like an explosion the past few days. <laughs> so yeah, totally. Around what's causing that ex that good explosion, but also you know what the differences are between all of the these different um, these different commitments. But I definitely yeah. feel like uh, the corporate sector is starting to understand that it's okay to not have it all figured out, like you said. Yeah, right. yeah, to work together and all those things, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that reflects the urgency of the situation, right? Yep. I mean, we have to do 
um, while we're learning. We have to, you know, and, and communicate and collaborate and all those things. It all has to happen simultaneously because the urgency is, demands it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so speaking of urgency, um, <laughs> one question I always am fascinated to hear people's answers about is where did you think we would be? It's the year 2020. Uh, you've been doing this for a while now and have been thinking about it, um, you know, and thinking about your role and change for since you were, you know, as old as I was probably when I started thinking about this stuff too. So um, does 2020 feel like a moment where you're looking back and saying, um, we, we did what I hope we would do, you know, et cetera. What, where do you think we are? Well, I am always um, <laughs> wanting to get to the end as fast as I can. So I would be lying if I said I wasn't disappointed with where we are today, um, just from a actual progress already made perspective um, and just feeling like we're going backwards in some cases. But at the same time, I feel like things are accelerating at such a speed <laughs> that we're going to be okay. Um, and that's probably the optimist in me a little bit, but I feel like that the shift to not having to have it all figured out to the nth degree of perfection is something that is going to benefit us now as that starts to become the perspective that's being, being shared is that action is more important than perfection. Mm -hmm. I think we can get wrapped around, um, again, data is important, but we can get wrapped around like the fourth layer of that data versus just saying, okay, this data is good enough and it's going to help us. So I think we've moved slow to move fast. And now there's this urgency around it. So we can't be perfect about everything. We're just going to take action, but also just kind of this, uh, uh, I don't know, um, the speed of collaboration that's happening just in the past couple of years that I've seen from the embodied carbon side of things with EC3, but also just generally speaking. So if you'd asked me two years ago, I would have been in a much more dark place with the answer probably, but I do feel like there's some strange thing about this year. I've heard um, folks like Jason McLennan use terms like it's the year of clear vision, 2020 vision, <laughs> um, where everything's going to perspective and focus. Um, and we really need to capitalize on the fact that we're seeing things more clearly than we had before. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Um, I, I think I'm the same way two years ago. It was a much darker place for, for lots of reasons. Um, but even at the macro scale, as it relates to climate change, I think it's, um, I mean, you were talking about corporations and their commitments, which is exciting. There's the whole world of uh, finance, which is shifting yeah. away from investing in fossil fuels. And, you know, there are some real things that are happening that seem, you kind of look around and you're like, wait a minute, is it, are we doing it? I think we might be doing it. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think one other just cool, cool example, just because I'm I, um, this just came across uh, LinkedIn the other day, but also seeing the kind of the same stuff popping up across sectors. So we're doing this kind of carbon labeling of building products and all of a sudden Just Salad, which is a, you know, a kind of restaurant uh, and catering company is putting their carbon content of their salads on their menus. So this kind of seeing it translate across things, again, outside of these little kingdoms of our own sectors, but that kind of stuff just really gets me excited. I'm like, they're doing the same thing we're doing, but on salads. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that, and that actually transitions pretty well to the next question that I want to ask you, because um, it's something that I think about as, a lot is like the building sector as it relates to other sectors of the climate fight mm -hmm. and what that tells us about, in particular, our progress, where we've done well and where we haven't had as much progress. And I'm wondering if you can tell us where you think in particular where we haven't seen as much progress as you'd like to see in in our movement and buildings 
but feel free to also highlight areas where you think we are doing it. We're making the progress that we should make. We're giving it the attention that it deserves. Yeah, I think the one that I, we still are not capitalizing on um, is building reuse. So, you know, I wouldn't have to focus so much on the embodied carbon of structural materials if we just started reusing more buildings that we have. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that is just a, a, a mind shift when it comes to how uh, developers and owners think about buildings and, and new building new things. Can we reuse things we already have? Um, you know, it relates to other, ca you know, impact categories, new sectors too, like clothes and all these other things where you have the same kind of issues, right? I need a pair of jeans. I'm buying a new one versus reusing a pair, going to Goodwill and getting over myself and buying that pair of jeans from Goodwill, right? that I'm buying it on Amazon. I'm talking personally for myself. I struggle with those things. Mm -hmm. um, but with buildings, I think it's how do we frame the conversation and really start thinking of our um, existing buildings as assets and, and looking at the, the carbon implications of, of reuse to make the positive case for that. And I, this might actually become a bigger issue now with, with work from home and how many people are actually going back to all those office buildings. I've That's been wondering about that, that yeah. idea that, that sort of the pandemic and all the changes in commercial real estate might might start to make building reuse somehow more uh, interesting or something. Yeah. Uh, but, well, so. Just getting into the resiliency of buildings too and how we mm -hmm. design them if we are building new to be able to be adaptive for other uses. It's like kind of early thinking of, do you build a new building in the first place? And, and how do we build for, for flexibility and reuse down the road? Yeah, um, I love that. And I, I love, I'm excited to see where building reuse goes. It's It's a... It's a cool one. Um, all right, well, the last question that we have for you is about um, people that inspire you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who uh, you're inspired by these days in any realm of your life and anything that you look to? Well, um, you know, first is my mom. She's been the inspiration since I was a kid. I mentioned that she was a, a single mom. You know, she decided to have me fearlessly on her own. So she was kind of more of a, a best friend with my grandparents at home. Um, but I watched her go from, you know, administrative clerical worker at a hospital in Oregon to the chief technology officer from the time I was, you know, little to to going to college um, and watched her do that while raising me. And um, and then her also, the, the thing that inspires me or keeps me going is this, um, whenever I said I can't growing up, she would tell me, um, can't's a coward that ever tried. And that's just constantly in my brain. So I, I credit her for a lot of I think my um, fortitude to just go try something in the actual kind of, I think building space, you know, Jason McClendon, I mentioned him before. He's um, someone that I looked up to and especially was inspired by when he first came up with the living building challenge and really put it out there as a call to action and then um, inspired others to actually take that on and turn it into, turn it into something bigger. Uh, so, and then now it's discontinued work of being an author and um, really getting the message out there and not being afraid to kind of tell things like they are in his presentations. I just give him a, a big call out for how he has been a leader in the industry. Yeah. So I think my, my mom and Jason are the two that come to mind right now. Oh, those are good ones. Um, I feel like actually, if I'm not mistaken, we've had a couple of other guests talk about single moms um, and certainly moms in general and just... Yep. Um, this, it, I, I hope those of you that are moms out there feel the, just the power of what that means, you know, that a lot of the women that we're interviewing for this show talk about 
their moms and what impact their moms had. Um, and I'm pretty sure if you're listening to this show, you're the kind of mom that is capable of raising a young woman who can go out or a kid of any kind, you know, who's going to grow up to be someone with that um, attitude of, of fearlessness. So yeah. Um, yeah. To your mom. Um, well, uh, that is a lovely way to wrap up uh, with a tribute to your mom and to moms out there who are raising people to be fearless and to to try things and to never say that they can't do stuff. So thanks, Stacey. It's been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. This has been great. Yeah. Well, I think that is it for us this week. Kira, any parting words? Not really. I have a lot to think about. And I think I think leaving on fearlessness is a great place. I find that very uplifting and optimistic, which is fitting with my, as I said, I'm looking for all these, all these um, signs and trying to act on and be inspired by the good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's a a good note. It's a good note to leave you all with. Um, So I hope you have um, an inspiring week out there in the world. And with that, that is it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.